right. So, so basically, we are here to kind of open up the, the heaven topic and to get some Q&A. We have been on this topic for three weeks. Okay, so let me kind of do a, a quick kind of rundown. If you were not here for week one, it's called the garden. Basically, we wanted to, to cover, you know, what's the basics of heaven, if you would. And so in this, in this study, I kind of tried to summarize it in one sentence here, and here's what it says. Okay, in the garden, God said his creation was really good. And the scriptures reveal his plan to re- redeem it and us. And basically what's going to happen is we see this picture in the book of Revelation where all of these things that were designed for each other will meet and come together. And so it's a picture of in, when Jesus returns, God and man, heaven and earth are reunited. But the one thing that we see in the scriptures that we see in life and nature is that when two things unite... Life is birth. Something new, something similar, but something new. Something creative comes out of that. And of course, the, one of the most obvious pictures we see is in marriage, right? Whenever you and your spouse came together, what came out? Something new, right? It's like you, but it's not you, right? And so we see this picture in the scriptures where heaven and earth and God and man come together, and we see something birth. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. And this is what we're going to be talking about when we talk about heaven. And so it's, it's the place that's going to be created when Jesus comes back and makes all things right. Now, week two was called a city. So what, comes, what happens in this thing, we see this picture where heaven and earth and God and man come together. But the, the final fruit of it is we see this city that begins to come down. And it's this picture. It's, it's symbolic of the place that God's going to create where we're going to dwell with him forever. And in this city, we see that there's going to be activity and relationships, and, and there's going to be newness. There's this idea that uh, for us to be uh, restored to our right image uh, with God, it, it means that our life is not just going to be worship, but it's going to be worship through all these very organic, natural things. We worship as we create. We worship as we steward His power and responsibility. We, we worship through relationship and intimacy together and with God. And basically, it just ends up being a place that we should really want to go. And all of this has to come from the idea that most of us have pictures of heaven that really just aren't very scriptural. And I told you guys this. I told you guys that, you know, the picture I used to have of heaven, of course, was like this spirit jellyfish. Right? Like you're kind of yourself, but you're not. You're kind of floating. You're not really walking. You know, like you're kind of, you're, you're, you're present, but you're not really able to do much. And just kind of, we're just kind of floating around light, taking in the glory of God. And somehow that is awesome for 10 million years. Right? What we see in the scriptures is that what is coming is new and it's different, but it's familiar. Again, it's of the same nature. And we see that whatever's coming, the, the bodies God has for us, the, this new earth, the new heavens, it's going to be different, but it's going to be from the like kind, meaning the same way that our children are different from us, they're also similar to us, because it's coming out of these two things that we have somewhat of experience with. Amen? Last week, we tackled a uh, very difficult topic. We tackled hell last week, okay? Because obviously, I always get questions about hell whenever we start talking about heaven. And so basically, the first thing we had to learn is that in the scriptures, heaven and earth are always paired together. Uh, often we pair heaven and hell, but we see that hell was not in the uh, initial plan or the heart of God. But what we do see is that whenever the, the new heavens and new earth come together, when God and man come together, the city is created, this place where we're going to, to live and enjoy and to be, but there's something that also happens. We've learned that love must be chosen, right? No. Nope. Is it love if I force it? If you have no say in the matter, is that love? Absolutely not. 
And so we see that in this idea that there's a city, there's also those who are on the outside of the city. And we see in all the parables of Jesus, there's always a party or a feast or a wedding. And then there are those who receive the invite and choose not to come, and they're on the outside. And so in the Scriptures, uh, I believe, uh, chapter 22, book of Revelation, we see a lake of fire. And the first things that go into the fire are what? Anybody know? You? Death? And hell are the first things, and the scriptures will say Hades. The first things that are thrown into the lake of fire are death and hell itself, followed by the source of evil. We see Satan thrown into it, and of course, and then what follows is everyone who chooses to be on the outside of the city. Now, we talked about the three different understandings of this, of hell. We talked about uh, basically the, the first idea is that whoever's in this place is going to be tormented for eternity. The second idea is that this, this lake of fire is destructive. It's the second death. And so everything that goes into the fire just ceases to be. And then we talked about the third alternative, which we should all desire. It's, there's just not enough in Scripture, but it's the idea that the fire is perfecting. And so everyone and everything ends up making it inside the city. I recapped a lot for you guys. Are you guys ready now? Should have answered almost all the questions we're going to get. All right, here we go. Question one, are you guys ready for this? I broke these down into uh, some basic categories. We're going to be super ambitious this morning because I really want to answer all your questions. But we have one Sunday, so I'm going to go very, very quickly. Agreed? Safe? This should be absolutely nuts. All right, first question I got, actually. This was the first question I received, okay? Will our pets be in heaven? Oh, yours is. Who cares about this question, by the way? Oh, two hands. I like that one. You know, I, I think personally, I've never been that close to an animal to where it mattered to me. But for everyone who is, we'll say this. Uh, C.S. Lewis would argue that they are in heaven, okay? Uh, we see in uh, Isaiah 11, we see this picture of the kingdom whenever the Messiah comes into control and he makes all things right. And in his world... You know, he sees this picture where the children are playing with snakes, where the lion and the lamb are, you know, together. This idea that all of the, the, the broken nature, basically everything of creation that was not his original intent is then made right. And so even these, these animals, these created things have a place in his new kingdom. So we see some kind of evidence that there's going to be uh, created things, animals. Uh, C.S. Lewis believed that anything that you placed your, your, your soul into, it's almost a picture of, in the same way that everyone who allows God to, to if you would, put himself in you, because in relationship and love, what happens? You kind of put part of yourself in someone, and someone else kind of gets in you. And so his argument was, anything that we allow truly into ourselves, say an animal or a pet or something that you just truly love deeply, and it becomes a part of you, and... Uh, he believes that those parts of you would end up with you in heaven. Now, caveat here, okay? Almost everything that we're talking about this morning is me trying to give you an educated guess, okay? Because uh, the, the Scriptures do not talk an awful lot about heaven and hell. It's, it's not one of the main themes that shows up very much. And so we don't get a lot of very, very clear pictures. So I will try my best to show you kind of where we're pulling these ideas from Scriptures from. And so uh, it should be a little bit fun. All right, here's the next one I got. Will we have spouses in heaven? Now, what's funny on this one is some people have great marriages are like, please, then, I, then others are like. All right, if you guys are uh, curious about this, Matthew 22 
Um, we have Jesus, as always, in a sparring match um, with the teachers of the law. And they had this question for him. And so they asked him, they said, okay, so if this woman has a husband, and, you know, if her husband dies, but then, you know, she has to marry the husband's brother. Again, it's the custom in the area. And so she ends up marrying all six of his brothers. Okay? When she goes to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? Whew. Family dysfunction in heaven, right? Okay. And uh, basically, there's a lot going on in this. Uh, the first kind of trick going on here is that the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. Okay, so that, that's the first kind of trick they're throwing in there. They're trying to get Jesus to, to say that, that, you know, that the dead will rise again. Because to them, that's superstitious, okay, about God. And so the first thing he does, of course, he goes back to Deuteronomy, and he quotes a scripture, which, again, he affirms that, yes, we're all going to rise again. And then, of course, the next thing he does is he makes a statement about angels. He says, in heaven, we will be like the angels. No one will be given in marriage, okay? Um, now, he says it in two different ways, but basically, what's clearly being said here is that there won't be any new marriages, because... All the other areas in the scripture where he mentions uh, to be like the angels means to be eternal because we see, we see that the angels are uh, immortal, if you would. And so in all the other areas of scripture where that word's used, that's a reference. So I'll say this. He explicitly says that there will not be any new marriages. From that point forward, it's all a guess. So if you really want to be married... You have some wiggle room. Well, he didn't come out and say that we wouldn't be married. He just said that we wouldn't have new marriages. If you really don't want to be married, well, we'll just leave that there for you. How about that? All right. Slightly getting into some more serious kind of questions here. Here's the next one, okay? Uh, once we get there, will we know uh, our family and friends in heaven? Uh, again, with kind of the understanding that I was taught uh, whenever I was a child, I was taught that you know, heaven, again, it, it, it's just kind of a disembodied thing, you know, where we're kind of in spirits because our spirits are eternal, so we're kind of floating around. And again, it's just, it's not a very lived um, afterlife. But in the scriptures, we don't really see this picture. And so again, the best basis for what heaven will be like comes from the Garden of Eden, again, because he's the same creator. The same one who made that is also making this. And secondly, we also base our... our uh, our guesses or glimpses of heaven from the resurrected body of Jesus. And so when Jesus, when he rose again, the resurrected body, his heavenly body, the first thing he does, he comes down, he does what? He eats, right? But he also, he also comes back to his relationships, and he spends time with the disciples. And so again, it, it, it seems that we have this picture where he knew who they were, they knew who he was. Uh, we also get this idea in the transfiguration um, in the book of Matthew, where he's talking to uh, Elijah and to Moses. Again, he knew who they were. They knew who he was. And so it gives us some kind of understanding. Again, relationships seem to be such an important thing to God. Um, the scriptures, as I, as I told you, are not centered on heaven and hell. What they're centered on is relationship. And so the most common theme from Genesis to Revelation is our relationship, our relation, if you would, to God and our relation to each other. To our neighbor, right? And of course, in everything that you're Jesus talking about, he talks about what? He talks about your relation to the Father and your relation to your neighbor. And so, with relationships being the biggest picture in the scriptures and the biggest emphasis of God, it, it only makes sense that whenever we get to heaven, there will be a full knowledge of who I am, of who you are. We are separate, distinct people. And uh, it's this idea that uh, 
I get to pick up relationships where they left off. But even beyond that, now I get to relate to you and, and to have uh, closeness and intimacy with you as a person who's fully made whole. So now you and I get to know each other and to spend time together fully healed up, without insecurities, without wounds, without, you know, those, those pains from the past, without hiding things from each other, without all these things about our broken uh, world that's caused us to be shelves of who we are. And so in essence, uh, the kind of relationship we, we should get to have in heaven will be much fuller than anything that we can ever experience on the earth. Amen? I'm trying to move. I've got like 20 questions, okay? So, and they only get better. Okay, here's the next one. Will we be aware if they are not in heaven? Man, some serious questions. Okay, I have to say this. I have to say, I was very surprised and a little bit uh, scared of the questions you guys shot me. These get really rough as we keep going, okay? But I'll try my best. Will we be aware? Um, traditionally, I think we've taught people that because the Scriptures say that in heaven there will be uh, no more tears, if you would, um, we've kind of pulled this idea that somehow for us to, to not, you know, feel loss and pain, it means that, you know, a part of us has to be uh, removed, if you would. And so it's almost like we'll be so infatuated, infatuated with God that we won't be aware of our family members who might not, you know, be there with us. Um, the Scriptures don't say anything about God undoing our knowledge of good and evil. We've talked about this in the garden, right? It all starts with us choosing to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This, this choice to be aware of all things that are right and all things that are not right. For us to choose to, to make judgments and, and to, to be our own God, if you would. There's no instance in the Scriptures where God undoes that, where He takes that away from us. And so... Um, what seems more consistent in the Scriptures is that this passage where it talks about there being no more tears, it's very similar to Isaiah, where it's talking about from that moment forward there will be no more loss or death or pain. And it's talking about the nature of heaven. It's not talking about the nature of what we are aware of. And so it's not that we will not be aware. Uh, if I had to take a stab, I would say that we would be aware. Um, and again, this is all just opinion. This is not doctrine or anything like that. Okay, just from kind of the, the full context of Scripture, it seems to show us that this sovereign uniqueness of who you are, your personality, your choice, your freedoms, your thoughts, will, and emotions, these seem to be so crucial to, to who you are, to what God loves about you, to, uh, to how we even make it to heaven in the first place. We choose to go there. We choose, you know, to choose Him and all these types of things. It just seems very backwards that God would take who you are away when you go to heaven. So, if I had to guess, I would say that we would be aware, but somehow, some way, there would be comfort, that we would know that there were those who chose a different place or different destiny, if you would, to be outside the city of God, but that somehow there would be a comfort for us in knowing that, but also being able to deal with that and to bear it. Uh, next question. Uh, oh, my goodness, it gets tricky here. Can people in heaven receive messages from us? Whew. Okay. Most of, uh, most of us have kind of grown up thinking about heaven in kind of a uh, platonic way, kind of a Greek thinking, where it's this idea that heaven is, is like this place above us, right? So it's like if I could like fly a mile in the air, 
all of a sudden, you know, heaven, right? I mean, like, no one else thought that, okay? You know, like, you know, uh, the imagery in the scriptures, like, Jesus comes down from the clouds. Most of us took that very literally. So, like, we're thinking, hey, if I could just fly with Jesus, you know, beyond the clouds, now we're in heaven, right? And so, from that understanding, you get all these paintings, right? Uh, the Middle Ages, okay, where, where these paintings of like these, you know, up in the clouds, you got the babies, the harps, you know, and they're kind of floating on a cloud with Jesus, but like, they always look very tormented, you know, they're like, oh, you know, like, anyways, I have no idea. Okay, and then like the next layer, you would see, you know, earth, you'd see like people all, you know, uh, in houses, whatever, and then you'd see that third layer. So it's, a, it's this idea that, you know, and, and then here's heaven, you know, under the ground. So, you know, like, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, hell is under the ground. So, you know, heaven's beyond the, the clouds, and here's earth, and you know, hell is, is down there. And so from that understanding comes some of the thinking, if you would, about how, like, uh, loved ones are in heaven looking down on us. Okay? To make sense. Uh, we see a passage with Jesus. He gives a story about Lazarus, about this rich man who goes down, and, you know, he basically has everything he wants in his life, but he ends up in uh, this place called Hades, and yet, uh, you know, he sees his servant, his, his door servant, if you would, uh, who, who's, who's with, with Abraham. And so he's tormented, and he's looking up, and Abraham's looking down. And we just have to be very careful with that kind of imagery. Um, that's tied to Jewish teachings in the Old Testament, which, again, so much of that is good stuff, but you still have to understand these are the ways that they are processing understanding things God was showing them. And, and there's also a picture of this in, in, in prophecies. When Isaiah or Ezekiel would, would prophesy about some nation coming to destroy another one, they'd prophesy about stars falling from the sky and things like this. And, of course, we know in history, whenever, you know, these things came to pass, you know, Babylon fell, things like that, Rome conquered, all that kind of stuff. It all happened, but it didn't happen in the way that they saw it happen. It was imagery. So we just have to be very careful with these kind of things. We know for a fact that heaven is not up there, Right? If I gave you a jetpack, do you think you could get to heaven? Okay, let's just establish this right now. Okay, like it's not up there and hell's not down there. Okay, um, <laughs> okay, anyways, all right. <laughs> I wasn't sure about that one for a second. You guys kind of like held your breath, like, are you sure about that? I mean, okay. What we see here uh, when the Jews would talk about the heavens. They, they understood that there was a, a, a heavens, if you would, which was what they would call the clouds and the stars and the sky, but the heavenlies was more of a realm. It's a dimension. And so when Jesus would talk about the kingdom of heaven, he wasn't talking about his kingdom that was up in the clouds. He's talking about this other dimension where God is going to now come into this dimension, where this kingdom is now breaking through into this world. This reality is breaking into this reality. The place where God dwells is going to come into the place where we dwell, and they're going to become one. So again, it's, it's very Greek for us to have this idea of vertical and down. All that saying, I have no idea if you can send messages. <laughs> but I did want you to know where all that kind of thinking comes from. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of hard for us to kind of slowly deconstruct certain things that aren't necessarily scriptural, if that makes sense. It's, it's not that there aren't things in scripture that can make us think that. It's how we read them, okay? And often we've been taught to read certain things into them that aren't there, okay? That was a tough one. Okay, moving on. It only gets harder from here, okay? So, the next topic. 
Hell and salvation. Most of my questions were really about salvation and hell. <laughs> you know, you guys are like, oh, you know, if heaven, we're good. But I want to know about hell and salvation. So here we go. Here's the first one. Will we be aware of hell? Well, um, I think I answered that one a little bit, you know, earlier. You know, with, uh, I do believe that we will have the awareness, uh, be fully cognitive and aware and all that kind of thing. I do believe that we will be aware of it in some way, shape, or form. Now, this kind of also touches some other understandings. If you are a uh, annihilationist, we talked about this last week, okay? There's plenty of scriptures to believe that. It's a sound doctrine in Christianity. If you believe that all things that are thrown in, into the lake of fire will cease to be, what that means is that there won't be a hell to be aware of. Does that make sense? If death and Hades and Satan are all tossed into this lake of fire, then hell will not be something for you to be aware of. It's something that used to exist. Because from this moment forward, and that's kind of complicated in time and space, but from that moment forward, it wouldn't exist. Whew, these are some tough questions. All right, here we go. Uh, can anyone in hell be forgiven to enter heaven? So the idea that uh, maybe someone who rejected Christ uh, in this life, what happens if they die or in hell? Is there any way that they have a, a second chance to come back? <sighs> if you are a... Um, universalist, which again, I encourage you all, that should be our heart. We as Christians should not desire anyone to be destroyed or tormented or suffer at all. But uh, unfortunately, we just don't see enough evidence in the Scriptures. But if you are that, if you are a universalist, you believe that there is a way through the, the picture of fire that it's going to perfect, it's going to burn off the dross, if you would. Anything that's not uh, able to enter the kingdom of heaven, anything like sin or, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. We don't see an emphasis in the Scriptures on what happens as far as how we get someone into the kingdom after this life. We don't see an emphasis there. There are a few passages in the Scriptures where we see where Jesus, you know, he goes down and he speaks to everyone who died basically, you know, before him. Everyone who died in the flood would know and all those kind of things where he goes down to them and they have a chance to, to be a part of the reconciliation of all things. But again, the, the passages um, about someone having a chance to receive Christ after this life just are slim to none. And so um, while we need to hope that there is that, uh, the gospel is supposed to spur us with energy and passion that we would spend our entire lives making sure that that's not even a question, that everyone has the opportunity, uh, that everyone gets to taste and see that God is good, and that they, that they would all receive Christ in this life. All right? Ooh, okay. Here's a really good one. Why would God create people that he knew would go to hell? You guys don't even, I mean... I've got some theologians in the house. I'll just say that, okay? You guys are asking questions that are like touching three or four different major areas of, you know, uh, uh, dispute and debate within theology. Okay, so let me just say this. Primarily, we're talking about sovereignty of God and foreknowledge. Basically, does God know everything that's going to happen? You know, so like before he created everything, does he already know how everything is going to end? And secondly, if he has this knowledge, is he the one who's making everything end in a certain way, okay? Um, what's interesting about this is, you know, uh, this is a debate here, uh, you know, in theology, but it's also a debate in physics. Uh, you know, is everything already predetermined on a path where it's going to end anyway? Um, we believe here that uh, 
We do believe in a form of free will. We do believe that, that, that there's a way for God to have knowledge of things, but also to, to stay out of it, if you would. And so, uh, again, because we believe that, that love must be chosen, we believe the invitation to the wedding, if you would, to the party, to the city, all, all these different analogies, this invitation to receive Christ must be consciously chosen. Uh, you know, we do believe that the reason that there are people going to hell isn't because he doomed them to it, it's because he chose because each person chose to go with them or not. And, and uh, someone who believes all things are predestined, that, that's called uh, Calvinism, if you would. Uh, for someone who believes all things are predestined, everything is set on a path to where it's going to go. They would argue that it's to God's glory. It's His sovereignty. It's His goodness. And it's not our right to question why some people go to hell and some people go to heaven. Okay? Uh, I could spend an entire month just on this topic, and I probably will in the future. All right. Sorry if that didn't help anybody. <laughs> if, you, if you are passionate about it, I will say this. First Timothy 2, 4, you know, it, it does show the heart of God. It shows that, you know, he wills that all would be saved. Okay? So, of course, the logical argument is if, if God desires for everyone to be saved, why wouldn't he allow them to do so? So, you know, it seems very difficult to argue that he's the one sending them on their path to hell. Okay? But that's a, a huge debate that's been raging for hundreds of years and will continue to. Whew, okay, we're moving. So what about people who never heard the gospel? So what about, you know, uh, 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 the pygmy Indian, you know, uh, you know who, who lived his entire life and he never, you know, heard the gospel? Well, there are four main views on this. We don't have time to, uh, to open up all these, okay? But basically, uh, the stance that I would take on this is that in the same way that we see that Jesus, he makes an effort and he, he makes a choice to go to all those who basically lived and died before he ever lived, before the work on the cross. He goes to them, he gives them this opportunity, if you would, to, to receive the invitation um, of his work on the cross. It, it seems consistent that we would see a God who'd make the same effort, okay, for, for someone in the Amazon who, who, you know, say, didn't have the missionary come to them, okay? And then often I get questions about, okay, well, what happened if someone, you know, who did hear the gospel, but if they, you know, uh, were in, involved in a church where, say, the pastor raped them? There are so many arguments on this, okay? Um, and again, the most important thing is to approach it humbly. Um, I think the biggest thing that we can say to this is in the scriptures we see a God who, who pursues us relentlessly. Uh, you know, a God who is willing and chose to, to humble himself, to take on flesh, to go through life as a, as a person, to understand everything that we go through, all the highs and the lows, and then a God who would humble himself to do what he did on the cross, I believe that he would also make the effort to make sure that every single human who ever had breath would in some way, shape, or form have the same invitation extended. All right? Are you guys keeping up or are you guys just done? You guys already just completely done? Is it interesting at all or is it just... Oh, goodness. If it's not interesting, please tell me, because, you know, I'd rather not be up here sweating all, all morning, okay? Oh, goodness, here's an even better one. So, if we were saved but didn't witness, serve, or give up worldly things, are we still going to heaven? Again, I got lots of questions about salvation, okay? What does salvation mean? Is it a prayer that someone says in a moment? Is it a lifestyle? Is it a choice? Is it a work of God? Like, what is salvation? And um, I think the safest place to be is this. We see in uh, Luke 9, 23 through 24, we see Jesus, he responds with a question. He's asked, you know, you know, who would be his disciple? Who would inherit the kingdom of heaven? He tells them very simply, 
Uh, anyone who would come after him must deny himself daily, pick up his cross, and follow him. And, and then he goes into extreme detail, and that's the verse we see. Anyone who doesn't hate his father and mother and, you know, all this kind of stuff, it seems pretty dramatic. But, you know, I think the picture is very clear. Uh, for us, if we desire to be a part of the new heavens and new earth, the, the action for us is to choose to, to abandon everything for him. Okay, I mean, like, that's what discipleship means. That's what the, the prayer in Romans 10 means, to confess that Jesus is what? Lord. It's this idea that he takes full mastery over us. It's in, in the scriptures, you know, it tells us over and over again that, you know, uh, this was scandalous to Jews, this idea that God would be a human. And so, you know, the gospel itself was, was always referred to by the Apostle Paul as being scandalous to Jews and, you know, foolishness to Gentiles. I mean, what does that mean to someone who hasn't experienced the real God to, to give up your entire life, your entire breath, and your time on this earth, your, your influence, your money, your choices, your future, to give all of that for God you haven't seen? It's foolishness. Uh, you know, and so this is the invitation of Jesus, in essence, to risk everything in this life, to pour everything into this gamble, if you will, because you, you have no absolute certainty of anything, but to, to lose everything for the cross for Jesus in the hope that this same person who defeated death would also bring you through death as well. Okay. My goodness. Here's an important one. Babies in heaven. We'll go here. Are we going to know or have babies lost to abortion, miscarriage? Early death. Uh, we saw in uh, Isaiah 65... You know, again, this picture of the kingdom. What, what's the world going to look like when the, when the Messiah, when Jesus is in control, when he takes back the earth and, and everyone that was his, everyone he's created, all time, matter, space. What's, going, what's it going to look like when Jesus is in control? And, you know, it's, he's talking about these cosmic things, but all these things are going to be made right. He's talking about, you know, uh, sin and evil and death itself are being tossed out. But he makes note that in his kingdom, no child would ever be stillborn again, that no child would have a short life. This idea that this God who's so big and so powerful, and again, he has this cosmic plan in, in mind, would even make mention of such a, a, you know, a minute detail. And so again, I believe it speaks to us of just the heart and the love of God for all of, of, of creation. And so I believe it gives us confidence that any, any child that's been lost, uh, miscarriage or stillborn or, you know, uh, passed away at a young age, uh, they will all be with us uh, in heaven. <clears throat> They're getting kind of serious, I'm telling you. Here's a really interesting one. If they weren't given a name, will they be given a name in heaven? Um, we have kind of this uh, obscure passage in Revelation 2. It talks about this the stone that's going to be written on, and, and on it, everyone who overcomes will get a new name. That's been argued sometimes, going to argue that in heaven we're going to have like new names. I think it's a little bit too literal, but basically, you know, I believe that the ultimate picture we see is that we are fully known, if you would. Uh, you know, it's this idea that Jesus is this prototype of what it means to be made fully in the image, to be fully human, to be made to the fullness of your uh, um, God-given potential. And so, in this new heaven and new earth, we're going to be fully ourselves, and because of that, we're going to be fully known. Um, you know, a name, if it were, we use names to identify, to understand, to relate, okay? And again, if you, if you track the history of names, names used to be very uh, detailed, you know? So, you know, sleeper, 
Walker. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> so, you know, with your name, if you track your name, the odds are it goes back to a trade or to a province or to an area. My first name's Devon. It goes back to Devonshire, you know, in England. Okay. The whole idea about names was to allow us to understand things about people quickly, right? But in heaven, we're going to have fullness of ourselves and full knowledge. So the idea of having to have a name to understand someone is very limited. Okay. So I'm not sure if names are even very important. The, the important thing is that the babies will be fully themselves, fully who God's called them to be, and you will fully know them as they were meant to be, and they will know you, uh, the best of you, if you were. Uh, what age will they be in heaven? Lordy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> who, who knows? Who knows? Uh, we don't have anything in the Scriptures on this, okay? Um, what we do know is, is, again, when Jesus uh, is on the mountain, he's speaking to uh, Elijah and to Moses. They seem to be relatable in some sense, okay? So when they appeared, their bodies were, had to be some kind of age where you could still tell their age. So, you know, uh, you know Moses wasn't, you know, uh, 6,000 year you know, years old, if you would. He wasn't like, you know, like skin and bone, you know, anyways. So, I don't know, if I had to guess, I'd say it had to be some kind, of a, some kind of an age where we are, you know, fully functional, fully comfortable. Who knows, it might even be based on, you know, kind of who we are and, and you know, self-image. I have no clue, okay? Scriptures have not shown us any babies, so I'll say that, okay? Almost every uh, picture of heaven we see, it's always full-grown adults, Okay, and, and again, it goes back to the nature of heaven. It's relating, it's doing, it's enjoying, it's being. And so, uh, you know, I would argue it's some kind of a mature adult age. But that is a shot in the dark, okay? But I'm trying, I'm trying, okay? I'm trying to answer all these, okay? Uh, someone even asked, can we have more babies in heaven? Some of you are like, yeah, some of you are like, you know. The dads are all like, no, no. No diapers in heaven, right? Okay. I don't know. Um, again, it kind of goes back to the marriage thing, right? It, it, you know, it's this idea that somehow it almost looks like there's going to be a cemented kind of a status of relationships, if you would. Uh, at the same time, there's an argument that could be made about the idea of uh, new creation. Part of the image of God that we bear is that we are creators as well as He is. And, you know, if you find it in, in, in life... Uh, we find such fulfillment and joy in doing things, okay? If it's, if it's gardening, if it's art, if it's music, if it's, if it's at, you, at work, when, when you, you know, uh, are able to do and accomplish or create something, there is a deep satisfaction in that. And so the idea that there could be more new creations coming, even in babies and children, there's an argument for that. Do I know? Absolutely not. All right? All right, we're getting toward the end. Miscellaneous questions. Oh, ooh, this is a good one. Will our sins and failures be judged in front of others in heaven? Uh, again, this kind of goes back to the very literal interpretations of uh, the things that the Apostle John saw. And so I know, like, whenever I was growing up in Sunday school, they'd have this big picture, you know, and it's like these clouds and like the staircase and, and like a door and like there's like a long line of people. Yeah, you guys seen that one? Okay, you got like the bouncer angels here. They're like this. You got like Jesus with this big book. He's like, okay, you did this and this and this. you know, um, yeah. I just think about that. Like, man, you know, like the first like you know a thousand years in heaven is gonna be in a line. 
that's awful. <laughs> you know, it's like, sounds terrible. Um, again, I think we need to be careful um, with the apocalyptic kind of images that the Apostle John was given. Um, and so again, yeah, I think if you take it too literally, you, you create these pictures of a long line, all those kind of things. Um, again, I, you know, personally, I, I don't interpret it that way. I don't believe that we're all going to be in this long line. And this, you know, this is going to be like a big, like, you know, screen. It's like, all right, Nisa, here's where you, you know, stink as a person. You know, it's going to like, you know, play this like, you know, super long video of like, you know, hey, you know, every time she cusses, you know, you know, that kind of thing, you know, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I really don't. Um. Again, we, we see the transformation, if you would. What's going to happen with the resurrection of our bodies and of our natures with God? It seems to be something's going to happen, you know, quickly, if you would. Uh, and, and again, it, it's not a matter of us having to take all this time to, you know, kind of replay our lives. It's this knowledge that's going to be imparted to us uh, quickly, if you would. Okay. Uh, is everything in heaven ordered? Meaning, you know, is everything in heaven going to be boring? Meaning, you know... Uh, Again, uh, the picture that most of us had about heaven. There's this bright light in the middle, and there's like harps or choirs, and we're all kind of floating around just kind of saying, you know, uh, holy, 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 right, for eternity. Um, you know, again, uh, I, I don't believe that's a picture that, that, that the Scriptures give us. I don't believe that he would refer to it as a city. Uh, I don't believe he would use the imagery from the Garden of Eden. I don't believe that he would use the imagery of us in relationship. I don't believe that uh, there would be a need for us to have bodies uh, if, if that's all heaven was. Uh, and again, um, I still believe free will is such a huge part of understanding our relationship with God in the future. So, my answer is no. Uh, I don't believe so. I believe we're going to have a uh, very organic kind of a, you know, uh, free-flowing existence. You know, uh, and again, everything we do is worship, not just song and dance, if you would. And so everything we do in relationship as we love and we show compassion and we create and we, you know, relate to God, all these different things, these are all expressions of worship. And I, I believe everything is going to have, you know, very much a free reign on it, if you would, um, because there doesn't need to be any restrictions anymore because everything that doesn't need to exist has already been tossed outside the city gates. Okay, so everything that needs to exist exists and everything is good. And so it's okay to keep on going as good things. Um, why are there mansions in heaven if there's no sleeping? This is a great question. I love this question. Um, uh, in Revelation, uh, with this picture where uh, when the new heaven and, and, and the new earth are created, uh, you know, the Apostle John, he, he doesn't see the sun or the moon anymore. And he says that, uh, that Jesus himself is going to be the light that, that lights everything. And, and again... Um, I think from that, I think we've assumed that there's any sleeping. Maybe. I'm not sure. You know, um, again, the one thing we do see in the Scriptures is that there is this, this importance of having a place of our own, a dwelling place, if you would. Um, and then we have to be careful, again, with the, the passage from Jesus on the cross. He talks about, you know, uh, he's going to prepare a place for us, but the Greek word for that, it, it's, it's more like a motel. Okay, he's going to prepare a kind of a temporary place before he prepares a new place. And so he's referring to kind of heaven as it is right now, this kind of temporary stop on the road. Um, I don't know. It's a great question, though. Um, but it seems like there is importance for us to have, you know, this own identity of who we are and, uh, and, and this, this opportunity for God to acknowledge who we are and to kind of give us good gifts uh, as they relate to who we are. And, you know, so I'm not sure if it actually means like a physical house and, you know, because, you know, I think tile is like evil. You know, like my house won't have tile. I'm not sure if like that's the way it works or not, you know. Um, yeah, I don't think that's really the point of the scriptures, but again, I, I think there's going to be a lot of creativity in the way that God kind of 
gets to bless us and lavish uh, his gifts on us. But with the sleeping thing, I don't know, because uh, there's something good about rest. There's just something about it. You know, and I know in the creation story, we see God rest, and, uh, you know, that can be taken all different ways. But there's just something healthy about just sitting back and doing nothing. And it's, it's not that our bodies will need it necessarily, but there's just something good about just kind of being still, slowing everything down, choosing to be present with each other and with God. And so I do believe that, that there will be some kind of a rest, if you would, in heaven. And who knows, you might have a house to do it in, okay? Even if it's always bright. Which, by the way, I, I like sunrises and, you know, nighttime too. So, I, you know, if it were up to me, there would be nighttime. I don't know. I'm not sure how it's going to work. Just saying. Okay, we're almost done. How big is heaven? Great question. How big is heaven? Um, it's cosmic, okay? It's hard for us sometimes because I think the gospel that most of us have been taught is, is very personal. It, it's very much about my spirit being saved, so I get to go float around in heaven. Um, but again, the scriptures are all about creation. It's a, this idea that it's the same God who created earth, but also created everything. He created time and space. He created planets, the universe. And so even though the scriptures talk about a city of God and about a planet, if you would, the new, the new heavens, new earth, uh, it's also kind of encompassing everything else that came with it. So in the same way that, that the first heavens and the first earth also had planets and universes and, you know, solar systems and, you know, all this different kind of stuff, I believe that we'll also have that in the next one. And so, you know, how big is the universe? Um, I believe the Jewish answer would be as big as your imagination, if you would. Okay, it's the idea that we get to go create. And there's even a slight picture of us kind of enjoying creating with God. So it's almost like I get to go over here and create something. Hey, God, look, I made a new universe. Awesome. Good job, son. You know, who knows? I don't know. It's all guessing from here. <laughs> okay, great question. How do we get to heaven? Flying, a staircase, teleportation. Let me say that in the scriptures, flying and a staircase are super heavy with symbolism, okay? Uh, flying is always a picture of, you know, of authority and, and victory, okay, to, to triumph over something. With a staircase, again, that's symbolism of the connection of, of, of the temple, the connection of heaven and earth. And so basically uh, when we see this picture in the Old Testament where he's, he's laying on this rock and he sees a staircase, it's a picture he's understanding now that, that God's made a new temple, a new place where the dimensions of heaven and earth are now coinciding. And so what I would say is the most literal thing that we see in Scripture of these examples, teleportation. We actually see that with Philip. We actually see Philip who's teleported, uh, you know, in uh, I think the fifth chapter of the book of Acts. So if I had to guess, it's more of an instantaneous kind of a multidimensional thing. Sci-fi nerds, anybody? Okay. Yeah, yeah, everyone's like, I'm going home. This guy is crazy. What a heathen. Okay. Uh, last question, guys. Will Adam, Eve, Moses, and Elijah be there? Yes, they will. We saw that, of course, in the Transfiguration. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, please go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 50. We're going to read a little bit, and here's how we're going to close. Apologize, I went over a little bit today. It's not my fault. It's my wife's. The worst thing went long. It's not me. Here's the Apostle Paul. He says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Pause right there. Understand that he starts earlier in chapter 15 
talking about the nature of our bodies. And he's talking about how the first Adam, the second Adam, about how um, there's all different kinds of flesh. And so he's not saying that we won't have bodies. He's saying that we won't have bodies tied in the same way that we do. And so he says in the same way that we had bodies of earth, we're going to have bodies of heaven. And so we're having bodies. He's just talking about, you know, flesh and blood for us is tied to being mortal, right? To have flesh and blood means that you can die, okay? And so he's not saying that we're going to be disembodied. He's, t- he's talking about that we're not going to die. <clears throat> he says it cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, okay, the flesh and blood, that which can perish, nor can that uh, inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, again, not able to die anymore. So those who have already perished are going to be raised with something. It's this idea of being clothed. Okay, so it's, that, it's, it's not this idea that you're stripping what you have. You're not taking this body and stripping it off and your, your spirit's flying away. It's that you're being clothed with a new body. Okay, it's it's the idea of like putting on a, a sweater or a vest. Okay, and uh, when you put this on, uh, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true: Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where O death is your victory? Where O death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, understand the Apostle Paul is always talking about, when he talks about victory, he's always referring to the resurrection. See, look, we have this Lord, the same master over you, the same one who now, in essence, uh, is, is, is bringing you with him, the same one who rose from the grave, the one who has the empty tomb, who beat death. He's the reason we have hope. Last verse. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not. Would you guys stay with me?